0: The Ohio Harness Horsemen's Association presents Top of the Stretch, a podcast that looks at harness racing in the Buckeye State. Today on Top of the Stretch, our guest is Pat Huber of Lima and Dublin, Ohio. He's been involved in harness racing almost his entire life, which now is at the eighty year mark. He has owned harness horses since that first one back in nineteen sixty-four. He's raced on the biggest stage in our sport, winning a Breeders' Crown in 1990, starting four horses in the Hamiltonian, both at DuCoy and at the Meadowlands. Has had horses with trainers uh, such as Hall of Famers Bruce Nichols, George Schulte, Linda Toscano, and Canada's Hall of Famer John Burns, just to name a few. Great memories with... Laverne and Charlie Hill, Dell Cameron, Delvin Miller, John Cashman, and the Mossbarger family. The list goes on and on. Welcome to today's edition of Top of the Stretch, Pat Huber. How you doing, Pat? I'm doing great, Roger. Nice to hear your voice. Well, I've announced uh, many a horses that you've owned over my career, and. Uh, Maybe not on the big stage, but on that big stage, before we get to there, let's go way back at the beginning. Your father was involved in harness racing, correct?
1: Yes, he was. He had a couple of horses that uh, raced around the fairs in Ohio, and I was lucky enough to be able to go to several of the fairs with him, Uh, although when I was in high school, I never got to go because I played football. And in the fall, it was um, all tied up with that. So, uh, but I enjoyed going to the fairs, and I loved the competition. Um, and that's, that's what really piqued my interest in harness racing. I always said when I got out of college and had enough money, I'd buy a horse. And I finally did. What was
0: the actual first recollection of horses in your life at a young age? The very first recollection
1: well the recollection was my my sister got a riding horse and i detested it because we had to go out to the farm all the time to watch her ride her horse but the second recollection was going to the fairs with my dad Mm -hmm. watching his horses race when you started out
0: you never dreamed it would be a, a lifetime involvement,
1: though, did you? No, I really didn't, Roger. I just, I just did it because I thought it would be a fun thing to do. Uh, my kids enjoyed going to the races, and um, I, I certainly didn't start at a very high level. I paid $2,000 for my first horse. And uh, What was that?
0: Although, do you remember the name of that very first horse?
1: Oh, yes, I sure do. Her name was Trudy Hal. I uh, bought her here at the Lima Fairgrounds in 1964 and sent her to Don McElmurray in Detroit to train and drive. And um, We won some races. And, of course, the first time you get in a winner's circle, it's kind of like someone throws a hook into you and says you're hooked for a while at least. Um, and and that was my start, and it was it was a good start. Don was a great guy, and all, he and his wife were very good to me. So, I had a I had good people to start the business with.
0: You know, everybody has to have a, a regular job, so to speak, when they're starting out. Uh, what have you been involved with over your lifetime,
1: Roger? I've only ever had two jobs. I've only worked for two companies. I worked for a trucking company when I got out of college, and then in 1970, I started my own business here in Lima. It was a warehouse and transportation logistics company.
0: Now, are you still involved in anything except the horses?
1: I have a small consulting business. Uh, I sold my um, warehouse and transportation business And worked for the new owners for 12 years and then decided it was time to retire that was in 2003 and um, I've been semi-retired ever since although I still do some consulting work
0: now from that very first horse in harness racing uh, how did you go about expanding your involvement
1: well From 1964 till 1972, I mostly owned claimers and racetrack horses in Detroit with Don McElmury. And um, my dad kept prompting me about the idea. He lived in Pompano, and he would go out to Pompano almost every Saturday morning and watch the guys train and as you know, it was a, at that time, that was the training center of the world, almost, for uh, the top names in harness racing, Billy Outen, Stan Dancer, Howard Bisinger, those type of people. And Dad got to meet some of them, and he said, if you're going to be in this business, why don't you hook up with one of these guys? So I was down there at one time, and he took me out to the track with him, and I met Bruce Nichols, and... Um, talked to Bruce a little bit, and we bought a horse named Lucky Hill. He was a B.F. Coletown, Ohio-bred horse. Um, B.F. Town stood at Charlie Hill's place, and we didn't pay much money for him either, but he ended up in the Hamiltonian for us. And um, year, that really was, piqued my interest.
0: What year was that for the Hamiltonian that Lucky Hill raced? 1973
1: race was won by Flirt with Ralph Baldwin driving that was held at DuCoin right yes it was yep and that really piqued my interest in in owning better horses so I, I kind of changed my whole game plan and from that point on I bought colts and yearlings although I bought a couple racehorses but mostly uh yearlings
0: what were some of those remembrances of Duquesne, Illinois? Because, you know, those involved in harness racing, you got to go back into the late 70s, uh, early 80s, when it changed to the Meadowlands, to have any uh, knowledge of Duquesne. Uh, what were some of the thoughts uh, you had about Duquesne State Fair Illinois? Yeah, well,
1: well, Roger... That was, in my estimation, the, the most fun time in the business. And when I say fun, we'd go to Indianapolis, then we'd go to Springfield, Illinois, then we'd go to DuCoin. And it was the same people that were at all those tracks. That's where I met Delvin Miller and Billy Houghton and Stan Dancer and people like that. And they would sit around after the races and and have a drink and chat and and if you were an owner you were part of that circle and it just it was a wonderful time in harness racing uh from an enjoyment standpoint those those fairgrounds were beautiful the race tracks were all mile tracks um and well kept the hayes family owned the decoying fairgrounds there and, and lived there and they always hosted beautiful parties prior to the hamiltonian So for a young guy in the business, it was a thrill to be part of that. And uh, it just furthered my interest in having good horses. Were
0: you disappointed when they decided to move the Hamiltonian to a major racetrack such as the Meadowlands?
1: Yes, I was, to be honest with you. But I also understood the economics involved. Um, I don't think there was a choice really. If if they were going to promote the Hamiltonian and get it to a million dollar race, which was the goal, um, they, it wasn't going to happen at DuCoin. It had to it had to advance to a major racetrack, and uh, obviously the Meadowlands was the perfect place to for it to go.
0: We're talking about Lucky Hill and his uh, race at uh, DuCoin. Uh what's been your experience for the Hamiltonian at uh, the Meadowlands?
1: Well, I've I've had three horses race there. Um the first one was cotton Hanover in nineteen eighty seven and he actually finished second in the first heat to Napolitano. That was the year that MacLobell won the Hamiltonian. We we were fortunate we didn't draw in with MacLobell in the first heat. So we got second in the elimination, and then we finished fifth in the final. Um, so that was a that was a great thrill to um, race that well against that type of competition. And then I had a horse named Armbrough Eldorado, who was questionable as to whether he should have been the Hamiltonian, but it was one of those things where he'd raced really well two weeks before, so we decided to put him in, and he got caught in a big field, and made a break and a, and a jam up on the last turn. So that was disappointing. And then in 1991, we had Chris's Best, who had won the Breeders' Crown the year before as a two-year-old, and Chris's Best finished three and five in his two heats. So, again, we came out of there with some money, and it was a thrill to be part of it. Um, you know, it's a it's a thrill to race on the major at a major level like that when you think you might have a chance to win something. So um my experience at the Hamiltonian was great. The people there treated treated us tremendously and um so my experience at the at the Meadowlands has always been very good.
0: Christus Best, uh winner of the Breeders Crown at two. Is that the only horse that you've raced in the Breeders Crown?
1: No uh, Cotton Hanover raced the Breeders' Crown. Um, let's see, who else did we race? Oh, we raced uh, Safely Kept. His two-year-old year, he did not do any good. But hey, wait, a uh,
0: wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait, Pat, hold up! I thought you dealt with trotters only.
1: Oh, I don't know, Roger. I've owned a few. I've owned a few pacers only. Two that I can mention that anybody would have ever heard of, I think, and that was uh, safely kept and Ball and Chain. Both of them led to some good friendships. I sold Ball and we sold Ball and Chain to Dan Plezak, and Dan was a major league baseball pitcher of some renown. And uh, we have become friends and have been friends ever since. I actually, have owned some horses together. So Now, you, you raced
0: safely, kept as a two-year-old, but then you sold the horse, and the horse right. went on to win the North American Cup.
1: That's right. Well, Roger, the other thing I've learned from the trainers is when you sell a horse, you always hope they do well for the next owner. And that is because if you ever have another horse to sell, guess who you can call as a potential buyer? If they don't do any good for them, they're not interested in buying your next one. So I've always been pleased to hear that a horse has done well for the for the buyer.
0: Now, in your career, you've also developed uh, a consistency to usually get rid of your horses at the end of their three-year-old campaign.
1: Yes, yes. Um, I was lucky early on, um, the trainers I had, um, especially I have to give credit to Dick Richardson who taught me that if you want to stay in the business at a high level, one of the ways you replenish your cash is by selling the horses and nobody wants to buy them when they're lame or going downhill so we found that the end of the three-year-old year was the best best time to sell them, and we sold a lot of horses to Europe um, at the end of their three-year-old year. And um, most of them went on and did, did very well over there after we sold them. Uh, Neil Hanover did very well. Uh, Krista's best was a, um, a sire for uh, the people we sold them to and did very well as a sire. So we were lucky in selling them uh, to Italy and Sweden and Germany, Uh, and then they went on and did some good so that people knew that if we sold them a horse, it probably was sound and probably was okay to buy.
0: You know, in checking at the USTA, it says that you've owned 106 horses in your lifetime give or take a few, because I'm not sure when they actually have records for. I noticed one of them was a horse by the name of Born to Trot. And, of course, that was the name of the book on the life of Rosalind. How did you come about to get Born to Trot?
1: Roger, I don't think Born to Trot ever tried. (laughs) I don't think it ever did any good. So my recollection of the horses that don't do good is not very not very good. Um, I remember the horse, but I don't remember anything about it or how we – I'm sure we bought it at one of the sales. But um, it obviously isn't listed in as a major uh, race winner. Uh, so I don't say, remember much about the horse.
0: It does say, though, in 1991, as a breeder – you bred born to
1: trot. Oh, that's that's correct. Yes, yes, I did. That's how I came to own her. Um, but but my breeding a- career was not very successful, Roger. I found out I couldn't compete with the major breeding farms, and had a couple bad luck situations um, where we owned a, a nice brood mare and. She either aborted or something happened to the foal prior to the sale we put them in, uh, had one mare slip on the ice in Lexington and break her leg. She was due to foal in about two weeks. And um, just things like that, and it just caused me to not want to be in the breeding business.
0: That sounds like my career as a breeder in harness racing. I had a mare by the name of Blow the Bugle, and we sent him to the Mossboggers down at uh, Uh, Bloomberg, uh, Ohio, and to breed. The first year, she came up, didn't get in full. The second year, she aborted in the field. And the third year, Uh. had a colt, and he got struck by lightning.
1: And I said, it's time to
0: get out of the breeding business.
1: Yeah, well, I think we must have been thinking along the same lines as
0: breeders at
1: that point. Being involved
0: in harness racing over the years... How has it changed from the early days to the present situation?
1: The good and the bad. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, the bad from my perspective is it, at, when I first had Grand Circuit Horses, it was so much fun, and the people were all your friends. And it was not a cutthroat business. Uh, I didn't know anything about anybody who was using illegal substances or drugs on their horses. And the people would sit around after the races and discuss the races. And If someone had a horse they were having a problem with, they could turn to their competitor and say, could you help me with this horse? And they'd say, sure. And maybe the next day they'd go out and train the horse for their friend and offer a suggestion how to get it to be better. I don't think that happens very much today. Today, it seems like the sport is dominated by the major stables, and I'm not being critical of them because, I mean, the Burks obviously have done extremely well, and some of the other major stables, Tony Alanya now is doing extremely well, um, the Toctors and so on. But, when I was in the business, it, I didn't know of anybody that, that trained 200 horses. It just didn't happen. Billy Houghton probably had the biggest stable of anybody. Um, and he was just as friendly and nice as anybody could be. And you could ask him anything. Uh, Stanley Dancer was a little more aloof, but he was... I'll tell you a funny story. I was at Pompano one spring with my dad, and I was looking to buy into a horse. And we go out to Pompano Park on a Saturday morning, and here's Stanley Dancer is having his fire sale before he ships north. And here's a filly on a long lead shank tied to a palm tree with a sign on her back for sale. (laughs) I went over and I said, Stanley, tell me about this horse. And he said, she isn't good enough for my stable, but she'll she'll make it to the races and she'll be okay. And someday she might be a good broodmare. And I said, what do you want for her? He said, oh, I don't know. He said, maybe $1,500 would buy her. <laughs> so I looked it up and he had paid $20,000 for this billy as a yearling. I thought, well, if he paid 20000 I can buy her for 1500 and she's ready to race, that's a pretty good deal. So I bought her for 1500 shipped her north to Don McElmurray, and she won her first two races. And somebody came along and offered me, I think, I don't know, $8,000 or something like that, and I, I sold her, and she never won another race. But it was – the difference between today and then was – Back then, everything was fun. I mean, the Adios parties that Delvin used to have were just fabulous events. Always had a golf tournament during Adios week. Um, The Grand Circuit traveling around the Midwest was wonderful. Uh, Going to Scioto Downs, uh, before the races, we'd stop in, see Charlie and Laverne in their office, maybe have a cocktail and Never had to buy a program. There's always a pile of programs there. Saturday night, 10,000 people at Scioto Downs for the races. It was wonderful. And today, that doesn't happen. I'm not saying it's worse today because the purses are pretty darn good in Ohio right now, and, and there's hardly anybody attending the races, per se, except at Delaware. So... It's just a diff, different atmosphere. Um, I don't think it's as much fun. It's more cutthroat and competitive. Um, so the, those are what I see as the differences. Some are good, some are bad. We're racing for a lot of money now in, in certain places, um, but uh, it doesn't seem to be as as much fun and and uh, there's not as much camaraderie. I want to mention something that you'll get a kick out of. I owned a filly at Pittsburgh for Bill Zent, and it took you four races to figure out how to pronounce her name. That was <laughs> Kenzie Skye Hanover. <laughs> it was everything She's still from racing. Kandinsky to – Yes, she won Friday night at the Meadowlands. Yeah. And I sold her to Tom Pollock, and we'd become friends. So it's if, I remember to...
0: if I remember correctly, the, the horse was named for two youngsters of somebody that worked at Hanover Shoe Farms in Hanover, Pennsylvania.
1: That's right. The girl's name was Kenzie Schuyler.
0: I want to close out, uh, Pat, because we're running out of time here. I okay. Want, your opinion, your opinion, the best trotter you've ever seen on a racetrack?
1: I'd have to say the
0: best MacLobel. What about a pacer?
1: Oh my. Oh Roger, I don't know. I I mean there's been so many good ones that have won so much money. I mean the best overall for a lifetime would have to be foiled again. Um He may not have been the fastest at any one point in time, but he was certainly the most consistent for a long time. In
0: 1965, you attended the Little Brown Jug. You saw a horse by the name of Brett Hanover. Do you have any remembrances
1: of that day? Uh, Very special. I remember Curly Smart and his crew cleaning off the racetrack, trying to make it ready to race. Um, I'd have to say maybe in my mind and in my recollection, Brett Hanover was one of the top two or three pacers I ever saw. Now, his times don't compete with the ones they have today, but to go undefeated as a two-year-old, I think he had 20 or 21 races as a two-year-old, and he only lost a couple races his entire life. He was a fabulous racehorse and a beautiful animal. Well, Pat, we thank you for being with us today and
0: uh, a lot of fond memories of harness racing. I want to close it out with one other thing. What is the number one piece of advice that you would give to somebody that wants to be involved in harness racing?
1: Well, the number one piece of advice, Roger, is the same thing that happened to me is to get to meet a good trainer and sit down with him and be as honest and forthright as you can be. Uh, I've told every trainer I've ever had, I will not use illegal substances in my horses. And if you choose to do that, that's fine. We'll just part ways right now and, and go about our business. Um beef Be very forthright and honest how you want to do business, at what level, how much money you have to spend, and that type of thing. But dealing with a good trainer, and there are some wonderful young people coming into the business, training today, some wonderful young drivers. So if you could meet one of those and sit down with them and and just be very forthright with them as to what your expectations are, I think you get off to a good start. And if you get off to a good start, you'll enjoy the business and and hopefully have some degree of success.
0: Thank you for listening to Top of the Stretch. Top of the Stretch podcasts are a presentation of the Ohio Harness Horseman's Association.